This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of But God Can, How to Stop Striving and Live Purposefully and Abundantly, written and narrated by Becky Kaiser and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. And now, Christ and Pop Culture presents Persuasion with Aaron Straza and Hannah Anderson. Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining the conversation today. I'm Erin Straza, and with me is Hannah Anderson. We're your hosts for Persuasion, the place where fine ladies, rational minds, and the best kind of company gather to discuss all sorts of ideas and issues. We want to welcome you to the second episode of our Talking About Talk series. Our first episode was all about the need for meaningful dialogue and conversation and all of the circles that you occupy. That's like home and work, community, church, even the digital space. And now in the second episode, we want to zero in on the role of family and how that informs how we talk. Yeah, Erin, it occurred to me as we were thinking about this series that we all learn to talk somewhere. Like we learn conversation. Um, But more than that, we learn like literally how to say words Mm -hmm. and how to put them together and how to make sounds and and how to communicate. And that all starts within context of family or home life. And I thought that would be a good place for us to kind of begin this kind of pressing into the idea of conversation because one of the things we have to do first is really unpack the assumptions we carry into um, our conversational life. And so many of those things were formed in context of family. In ways that we probably don't spend a lot of time sorting out either, because we're so used to talking by the time we're adults. It's not like you go back and you think, what were my first words? And how did my parents train me to get to start talking and and stringing the words together and make senses? We don't really think about that, but it does affect everything. Um, Mm. I, I think about how I grew up and I am the younger of two sisters. And my sister is very talkative. And I guess she had always been pretty talkative. And so I was not a big talker because my sister was always talking. And my parents jokingly say now that I didn't need to talk because my sister used all the words for both of us. <laughs> and so yeah. that has made a difference in how I talk. But I did learn how to talk. I did actually mm-hmm. learn how to use my own voice. Well, and I've noticed that with my own children, that um, my oldest, my daughter, is pretty verbal and she carries a lot of conversation. And um, my middle child, Harry, appears to be quiet until you get him alone. And my husband and I joke about this all the time, that if you are one-on-one with this child, if you're running an errand or you're going somewhere, like there are worlds within this child that suddenly can come out because he's not competing for airtime. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, he doesn't have to fight his way through all of the noise of everyone else's conversation. And and we learn the most fascinating things about him when he's given that space. But it's so interesting to me because something we would assume is like 
maybe personality. You know, we say that, oh, you're quiet mm-hmm. or you're an introvert. Mm-hmm. And and I wonder, like, how much of that comes to us naturally and how much of that is formed in, in nurture, in the environment that we grow up in. And I think we see this more um, literally, like sometimes we'll have linguistic quirks or we'll have certain ways of forming uh, sounds or words. And we know we can trace that back to the way our family said something or even like our region mm-hmm. said something. Mm-hmm. I, I grew up um, in a family. My dad was in the Navy early on. And so we moved quite a bit. And my parents are from Wisconsin. And they're, I remember going home to visit their family, going back to Wisconsin. And I could hear this, this, sound, the way that my family, my extended family would would verbalize certain words. And I would think, oh, that sounds almost Canadian or something. But then we would live on the East Coast and we lived in Pennsylvania and now we live in Illinois. And to hear all those distinctive sounds from different groups, I, I think early on my ears were very aware of, of verbal differences. And wherever we moved, people would say, where are you from? Because of my the way that I said words and the way I pronounced words was different, always different from where we were living. And and now that I've lived in Illinois for quite some time, people have said that I have a, a distinct Midwest sound. So I'm guessing that now that I've lived here long enough, I have shed whatever I had from Wisconsin or the East Coast or Pennsylvania. And now I just sound like I'm from Chicago or something. Which and this may show my uh, linguistic snobbery, but to me, like the whole distinction of a Midwest sound is that there's no distinction. Like it's very flat. Yeah, like to me, it's, it's the lack of an accent. It is. It's void. <laughs> it's just blah. Yeah. Great big open spaces. <laughs> when when you think about your family, Hannah, are there certain ways of speaking that you think are distinct to your family? And how you learn to talk? You know, it's funny because we talk about regional accents. And what we don't remember is that it is regional, but it's regional because certain people clustered together. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, like, when I think about my family, I really can't uncouple it from the regional accents. Like, people may say this is regional, but to me, that's just the way my family talked. And I didn't realize that that's not the way the rest of the world talks until <laughs> until I moved away from my family. So, like, I remember, and I grew up in southwest Pennsylvania, and my grandmother would say, um, oh, quick, we got to red up the house because people are coming over. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so red up meant you have to clean up. Yeah. You have to get the house ready. So we're going to red up the house. And she would say wash, mm-hmm. wash rag. Yep. We had a, you know, get your wash rag and red up the house. And I'm trying to think, uh, Hickey Madougal. And <laughs> I've never Thingamajig heard that. Hickey Madougal. Yeah. Oh, I've never heard and, that and one. So That's fun. There were these words that later I realized were regional, but I only encountered them in context of my family. Um, I remember distinctly going away to college was like the first time I had been away. Like I had encountered other people, but I hadn't been away Mm -hmm. for an extended period of time. And a friend who was from Wisconsin, incidentally, uh, mocked me. 
she was like, you sound like such a hick. And I'm like, oh, honey, you're from Wisconsin. I don't think we should be having this conversation. You, you don't want this. Did she sound but, slightly Canadian? Uh, just Wisconsin, like typical, yeah. you know. And But I had never heard myself. I didn't realize it. And then I, I started – I took some linguistics classes and I realized that there were some words that I could not – I literally could not say. So for me, pool, like you swim in mm-hmm. and pool on something, pull it toward you. Oh, same word. it is. Yes. And full, like the thing is full. Yes. And you're a fool. A fool. You, you oh. Yes. Same word. Hannah, how is it after all these years, this is the first time that I've um, – Come, become aware. Yes. And, and I guess we've never used these words together. Because <laughs> Nathan and I will talk about these words and he's like, here, try to say it. And he'll he'll <laughs> say like, the I difference. Can't. <laughs> and I'm like, yes, full and full. That's what I'm yes. saying. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. And he's like, no, you're not. Listen. And I'll listen and I can kind, I can almost hear, almost hear a difference, but not really. And I'll try to repeat them and nothing. I can't. I can't do it. Oh, no. <laughs> but I feel like those sorts of things add to a person's charm. It, it's like, oh, this is who you are. And it, it tells so much about um, your upbringing because it is something rooted in how we first started to hear words and language. Mm-hmm. And it becomes so embedded. And years ago, I... I was doing a series on my blog about words and pronunciation, and I did a deep dive into regional pronunciation of words and who pronounces which words which way, and is there a certain right way of pronouncing words? And I thought there was there, there was a one right way to pronounce certain words, and then the more I dug into it, it was like, oh, it all depends on where you, where you grew up and also are you are you running in a circle that actually leans more into british style english or us style english and that all makes a difference in how you talk and so then that understanding now it makes me have i i think a little less um Ire. Judgment. Yeah, judgment. Ire. That's the word you're looking for, Erin. Snobbery. Like you mentioned, judgment toward people because I think, oh, no, you are saying that wrong. And now I'm like, well, now I just realize you were from a different part of the U.S. Or if if your circle leaned more into that British English pronunciation, that's why you were saying words a certain way. But all this comes back down to those first formative years and and how you learn to talk. And it's not just how you pronounce things, it's how you communicate. My family tends to be pretty quiet and 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 doesn't engage a whole lot um, on topics. Now we do as adults, but I when we when I was growing up, there wasn't just a ton of family discussion. But now we have normal adult-like conversation. But when Mike and I started dating, we're high school sweethearts. So uh, I would go to his house and his family is very, very um, talkative and robust. And there's a lot of energy and noise. And it was very overwhelming to me. But I think in a in a lot of ways, even in high school, to see that family dynamic and how they talked within the home, I think that helped me to um, 
see a different way of communicating and maybe adopt some of those principles as I matured. Mm. I had a similar experience when I first met my husband's family. And we grew up um, probably about five hours from each other. We had met at college. And so I was coming to meet his family devoid of even regional, like, expectations. And then um, when I first met them, their family culture of conversation was so much more direct Mm -hmm. than Mm -hmm. I was accustomed to. Like, my family was talkative and in some ways too talkative. The quieter members, you know, it was a burden for them Mm -hmm. because the rest of us talk so much. But – when but we were we approached conversations a certain way so we had them but we had a certain way of entering them and a certain way of engaging in them and there was a little bit of um i wouldn't say passivity but but definitely there were certain terms of how you would have this conversation mm-hmm. when i met my husband's family they were much more just say what you think you don't have to have you know these guardrails it wasn't you know it it was kind of different to me but refreshing in a way because everybody wasn't self-editing you know yes like there was just this capacity to say why are we having this for dinner i don't like this (laughs) (laughs) and and if you haven't grown up with that you're like wow that's actually Uh, a little bit it was it was abrupt Uh and yet it was something that i found appealing in a way, because there seemed to be a level of, uh, like I said, that everybody wasn't self-editing all the time. Um, and I think what, what Nathan and I are trying to do in our home now is take the best of those um, to say, yes, you need the freedom to be able to express yourself. And of all spaces that should be safest, home should be the space where you can um, be yourself, express what you need to express, ask the questions you need to ask. But also, this is kind of a training ground for learning how to respect other people's feelings. Mm-hmm. Like your feelings are not the only ones that matter. You know, your need to express yourself is checked by someone else's need to express themselves. And so I do think that family, not as only formative, but I but I think it can be such a valuable place for preparing us to have better conversations in the other places that we exist in. You had mentioned earlier that um, your middle child, once he's one-on-one, he's he's a real talker. But then in the group, maybe he's not as talkative. And that's something when we first started talking through this um, episode, I hadn't really thought about the family dynamic is not just the collective around the dinner table. It's also how the members interact individually. And then as they come back together, how that looks. And I think that's key within a group. Um, Even if there is someone who would be more quiet, like I think I was the quiet one in my family, um, that's fine as long as there's engagement with that person one-on-one so that then when you're coming back into the group, there is, there is growth and learning and that person feels part of it because you're, you're able to bring that in and pull it in into that conversation and into the family life. Um, 
I think both of those things are needed. Like within the family, you need the group dynamic, but you also need good one-on-one. And I think both of those types of conversation make a difference in how we are able to see ourselves connected to one another within the family unit. Absolutely, because I can see the definite potential for the more talkative members of our family to dominate the quieter ones. Mm -hmm. And it means for someone like me who talks easily and fluidly um, to to learn the self-control to stop talking so I can hear the other members of the family. And I think what's distinct about family conversations is like I have, I love these people. So of all the people in the world that could call from me the ability to stop talking, it should be these people. So my love for them is forming in me this um, capacity to hold my tongue so I can learn them, so I can hear them. And, and that's not something you're going to do for strangers. That's just not a process that you will naturally embrace for someone you don't care about or there's no um, reward for you. So this really is the training ground, really, to be able to engage people and to lay down your your life in terms of being that sacrifice of saying, I'm going to guard myself here so that I can seek out someone else. And I think on the flip side, for someone like me, who may be more reserved and, and tend to be more quiet, it's almost like I then need to choose to engage and choose to to try to be in the midst of conversation, even if maybe my default might be, oh, I'm just going to take the easy way out and not contribute. But it's the that give and take that's so important. It's 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 all the parties saying, hey, we're all in on this together. And unless we all contribute, we aren't going to know each other. And right. we aren't going to build connectedness that we all really need and that we were made for. And that's where you get it is with, first of all, within that mm-hmm. family unit. Yeah, and I think even within the relationships, um, like I know I want to know these people in my house. I want to know who they are, who God has made them to be. I have a strong drive toward relationship with them. Um, But even something as pragmatic as having a functioning household. So I think another thing that's built into family life is it is the relationships, but it's also the work you have to get done. You have to be able to communicate. I'm going to be here at this time. (laughs) I would like this. Mm -hmm. We need this. And there is this built-in component of shared work that if you don't speak up, let's say you have a quieter personality. If you don't speak up and let your needs be heard, or you don't speak up and say, I have, we have to do X, Y, and Z. The family in the household isn't going to function. Mm-hmm. So I do think there are these really beautiful built-in mechanisms that force us to learn how to talk and how to communicate well. Now, I know as well as anyone that families can be highly dysfunctional and their conversation and their communication isn't healthy. 
But I think what we have within our households, whether it's, you know, like a a nuclear family, an extended family, even roommates living together, um, we have an opportunity in this space to have a microcosm for learning how to communicate well. And if we do the practice there and we take those opportunities, I think it's going to just, it's going to ripple out into the rest of our lives. And as you're talking that out, Hannah, I'm thinking about how crucial that is. Even when you were mentioning the relaying of, of detail of coordinating schedules and how are we going to get something done? If you don't learn that skill of relaying information, what a detriment that is when you start working somewhere. I mean, you have to know, oh, I'm part of this team and I need to communicate these details so that the work is getting done and how formative it is to start it at home and to understand, oh, I actually belong here and my contribution is needed. Like, it's not just if I want to or not. Like, if I don't communicate, it's going to break down the entire system. And so to understand how how crucial it is that we learn how to communicate and we think about what happens if I don't share this with someone else. Mm-hmm. Right. I, I, yeah, and, so needed. And even with my kids, um, I as they get older, I begin to say to them, okay, if you have something that you need, it is your responsibility to remind me to do it and to tell me about it. Mm-hmm. And some of that's just they've learned that they don't get it because mom's too scatterbrained to remember. <laughs> so, like, there's this just, okay, this is a life skill I have to have because my mom doesn't have it. Right. But but I've told them, I said, you know, if you have a program after school or if you have a club you want to stay for, it is your job to remind me and to tell me the day of. You have to take responsibility for giving that information to me. I will be there. I will pick you up. I will change my schedule. But it is not my job to remember your stuff. (laughs) (laughs) You would have too many people's things to remember if that would be the case. (laughs) It's your job to communicate that to me. Yeah, yeah. I like that, um, that learning of the responsibility that okay, whatever it is that you have in mind, you need to be the one relaying the information. And that way you don't have to be a mind reader as the mom. Right. Or if you're feeling bad or you're feeling resentful or you're feeling hurt, it is your job to tell us this. Mm -hmm. And we can't know how we have hurt you or we can't always know. I mean, like most of the time we hurt each other because we were oblivious in the first place. Yeah. So you're expecting an oblivious person to then be aware of how they've been oblivious. And, you know, so just the, the, the responsibility of communication. Well, And I think, yeah, family is definitely a place to practice that. I mean, now you're taking this to a deeper level, though, Hannah, because this is more than just relaying schedule details. Now you're talking about the, the basics of good relationship skills, which is, oh, my feelings were hurt, and now I need to talk it out. And that's very scary to do anyway. I mean, nice to think that, oh, in the safety of the home, you can go to the person who has offended you and, and say, hey, you really hurt my feelings, and you can have the conversation, and the person can ask for forgiveness, and all can be made well. But that's 
in the best of scenarios and doesn't always happen. I mean, even for Mike and I, there are only two of us here. So it's not like there are multiple members wreaking havoc. Like if there is a problem, it's between the two of us. And so you would think that after 26 years of just the two of us trying to sort the things out, it would be easy to be like, oh, wow, hey, you're the one (laughs) that has just hurt my feelings. But it's still hard and you still have to practice it. And it it does affect like the way that Mike and I practice these good skills of honesty and then communication. It does affect how I carry out my other relationships. So what goes on here is in some ways the the pattern for how I will relate other places. And so I have to be practicing that right here if I'm going to have any hope of doing it elsewhere. Yeah, and it is really hard. And I think there are dynamics in family that also make it twice as difficult. So you've got this massive opportunity to learn how to communicate well, to have um, your voice heard, to speak up when you have a need. You have the opportunity to teach it to younger members of the family. But there are also inherent barriers to that are built into family structure that make it twice as hard and i wonder if some of those barriers um also mean like you know how when you're running and you put extra weight on Mm -hmm. you're you know like ankle weights so that when you take it off it's easier yes so some of the things that make family conversation harder even though it's a good opportunity, are things like the parent-child dynamic where the parent um, has this feels this responsibility for these children to turn out well. And so our fear and our insecurity of doing a good job as a parent could stifle honest conversation. Oh, that makes sense. About hard things. Mm-hmm. So like if my kid comes to me and starts asking questions about faith or about sexuality or whatever hot button issue it is, as a parent, if I'm in like this self-protection mode of, oh, I need my kid to turn out right. Well, here's the answer. Don't think about it. Don't ask your questions. Shut down conversation. Just know the answer. Mm. But But that's stemming from my own fear and insecurity. What I have to do is kind of get over myself and be willing to let there be a conversation, to let the questions come to the surface, to talk through, to listen to what that child is thinking or feeling, or even a spouse. I mean, I'm not the the dynamic of a marriage if if one um, partner is questioning or doubting things that once had been held in common you know like it's really tempting to say well you're not the person I married you can't change your ideas you can't change your mind on anything so we're going to shut this down and I don't want to hear your doubts Mm -hmm. Um, because we have so much invested in family our closest relationships in this world are in our homes sometimes the stakes can feel so high that it's it feels like twice the risk to have a hard conversation. That makes sense. And the fear, I think that comes with that. If if you if if I am hearing from a family member things that are scary to me, um disruptive to my inner stability where I think, "Oh no, you are 
you are going to choose something different than what we have originally held as joint beliefs or joint ideas, that can be so scary. And um, I think that that I've sensed this in me where it can lead me to be snippy and um, frustrated because I would rather there be unity in the idea rather than really knowing the person. And so in, in this context of how do we become better conversationalists because we are in family, it is the pattern for how we can understand people who think differently than us outside of the home. Mm. And so Mm -hmm. if there are scary ideas in the home, then certainly we don't want to look for them outside of the home. And so I think this is why we tend to rally around the people who think like us, because it just seems easier. It seems safer. Um, There's less chance of it being unsettling. Um, But how we practice that here then allows us to have Mm -hmm. um, openness toward people who think differently, whether it's family members or friends or someone in the community or someone online. Yeah, I think one of the most surprising, growing, stretching experiences of my adult life has been when family members, um, when we're in spaces where things are changing and what once bound us together, mm. I, I expect a difference from people at a, at a distance. Like, I, I wasn't surprised to be in disagreement with co-workers or friends or people you go to college with, you know, you just kind of expect that, yeah, there's going to be differing opinions. Yep. What I found revealed my immaturity the most is when family members started having differences of opinion or differences of views, and it threatened the stability of the family. Yeah. And I think there is a valid danger there that if if you're going through your doubts and you're going through your process and you're not thinking about how that process affects everyone else that that's problematic but if everyone else is shutting down your process because they can't handle how it's destabilizing them that's equally problematic and and I can see in my own life kind of wanting family members to just figure it out, you know, deal with your issues, deal with your problems, get your questions answered (laughs) so that my life can go back to normal and you're not destabilizing it. Yeah. I mean, that's so common. I, as um, a person, I admit that I am that peacemaker type personality where I'm like, let's all hold hands and sing kumbaya. (laughs) Let's all get along. Um, I can be that person where I think that peace and unity is more important than understanding, Um, like sorting through all the details. I, I can be that person. But because I know that I can be that person, I really have to force myself to ask deeper questions to understand why is someone thinking this way? And then once I start to understand the why, it's not as scary because I realize, oh, this is the person I know and I care about and I love. Um, It's not scary. It's that 
there are things that are swirling around that I have no idea about. And just because you live with these people, your family, your extended family, that doesn't mean you know everything about them. And Mm -hmm. I think that's also a danger with family in conversation. It's the assumption that, oh, well, I already know you. So there's nothing really new that you could tell me. And, and really, it's the opposite. It's like, I mean, how much do we know? And how much is there still yet to discover? And with family, I think there can be that shortcut of, oh, I already know you. So I don't need to ask. Well, actually, you do need to ask. Because there's a yeah. there's a whole sea of information there that you've never even um, dove into yet. Right. And, and some of that can just be natural growth and change where we are not static mm-hmm. beings. Mm-hmm. And over the years, you know, sure, you may have grown up with me or you knew me 20 years ago. Well, I'm not that same person now because I've had different experiences, right. different thoughts in my head. But I also think there's the risk that certain family cultures have shut down self-expression or allowed the individual to reveal themselves. And so maybe as an adult, this is the first time they've ever been able to reveal themselves. Mm -hmm. Maybe they've always been this person, but they've never been in a space that they felt the courage or the freedom to say the things that they're struggling with or saying now. And like I said, this has been one of the most startling, unexpected experiences of my adult life is when things I presumed about family, the conversations that I would expect to have within family were very, very different. Um, And one of the things that I'm learning and I'm trying to engage with in humility is to say, regardless of whether the other person is entering conversations caring about you, whether they are entering dialogue and debate in a healthy way, doesn't mean that you have to enter it Mm -hmm. healthy. Mm -hmm. Like their behavior in the conversation and in the debate has no bearing on whether you behave in a healthy, mature way Mm -hmm. within the conversation. Mm Mm-hmm. And so you come owning your own contribution. And and I think that's something, um, especially within the family, there's something about that where it is teaching the interconnectedness and what's your role. I think that that is something that um, shapes how you you enter dialogue and if you want to enter dialogue, but owning your own contribution and knowing that it's important that's key. And as we talk about um, all these different issues related to dialogue and interacting, um, we we have several more episodes planned here about these things to go into our series. Um, and in the next episode, as we wind this one down and look ahead to the next conversation, we're going to dive into how we engage people and um, and and looking at that as a as something that we we try we actually we put an effort toward it and I I like what you're saying there Hannah about we have this responsibility and I look forward to that next episode where we can hash that out a little bit more but right taking it beyond these 
where we first learn conversation and moving out to the next step Mm -hmm. and how we take those baby steps with other people too. Well, as we bring this part of the conversation to a close, Hannah, do we have a question of the day? We do. Oh, good. The question of the day is, is there a unique quirk to the way your family talks? What is your regional quirk or your family quirk or words that only make sense within the conversations that you have um, with the people that you grew up with? I can't wait to hear the answers to that. (laughs) So you can share that with us um, on Twitter at our Twitter Persuasion Twitter account at Persuasion CAPC, or if you're in the CAPC members forum, we can chat about it there. And as always, you can become a member of Christ and Pop Culture for just $5 a month. Um, You can support conversations like the one we're having here and all kinds of other good content um, through your contribution that will also give you access as I said, to the members forum, where we have a lot of really stretching um, good conversation. And as we mentioned in uh, the first episode of this series, we have new ways that you can connect with us online. You can check out our website, persuasionpodcast.buzz. And we are also on Instagram and Facebook. And we tried to make it real easy for you since you all know our Twitter handle at uh, persuasioncapc. Our Instagram and Facebook are the same. So you can find us at persuasioncapc on all the platforms. We'd love to to hear what you think. Make sure you come out and answer the question of the day and, and give us some feedback. We want to say thanks to Jonathan Clausen. He produces our show and all the other shows in the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. You can give them a listen at Christ and Pop Culture. You can go to iTunes, wherever else you listen to podcasts. When you're out there, we'd love your ratings and reviews. They help so that new people can find us and listen in. We thank you for listening to Persuasion, and we will catch you next time. You have been listening to Persuasion with Aaron Straza and Hannah Anderson, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show in iTunes, and check out our other shows at christandpopculture.com slash network. Theme music by Maiden Name. This episode was brought to you in part by Just These Guys, you know? A pastor and a psychologist team up to break down scripture and psychology, empowering you to transform by the renewing of your mind. Listen today at justtheseguys.podbean.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Just These Guys, you know?